Well, <laughs> very simply, it means that um, if there's no banana, an apple's okay. Or if the, the rivers are down, polysuttas, it's okay to study those. In terms of the more complex nature that you're addressing this, all of us humans have um, dispositions. You know, some of us like apples, some of us like, uh, well, I would say mangoes. And uh, that's just a natural disposition that we have. Some of us have dispositions toward music, uh, toward work in the business world, toward teaching and so forth. And we're born with those. We, there, are, there are karmic dispositions. We have those kinds of inclinations. Some of these inclinations lead toward uh, uh, skillful actions. Some lead toward unskillful actions. It all depends on the presence or absence of, of wisdom there. So, I mean, in the world, whatever preferences or whatever dispositions toward actions or activities or things that we have, it really comes down, I think, in the most simple, on the most simple level to our relationship to it. You know, uh, the degree of attachment or the degree of detachment to that thing, that action or that person and so forth. We make our choices. That's part of the household life. It's, uh, you know, we also make choices in the monastic life. And uh, uh, if we're mindful, if we're aware, then we can follow those preferences. We can choose to do those activities with the least amount of, of, of attachment, the least amount of aversion, uh, and so forth. So, I don't know if I'm addressing... So there's not an inherent wrongness in preference? No. No inherent wrongness in preference. The guiding principle, again, would be, is this preference, you know, is it... We might use a wider kind of uh, attention, like wise attention. Uh, there might be someone behind us in the last banana. You know, uh, taking it would be okay, leaving it would be okay. What is your relationship to it in that moment? One day you might leave it, another day you might take it. Got it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And is that, is that the nature of identification? Is that what identification is? So, can you phrase that more precisely? Are you saying self-identification is... Right. I would put it this way. What identification is, one way of actually phrasing or um, defining identification, is itself attachment. Is itself aversion, so that uh, attachment will be for something, or that aversion will be against something. The identification is inherent in the attachment, in the desire, in the con- condemning mind.
sitting with these mind states and knowing these mind states. We may see them as they take objects or, or not. You know, we, the desire is usually for something. Very often you can separate where the desire is going toward, you know, the, the idea or the fantasy or the, the object, the food, whatever, and just sit with the desire, just feel it, uh, the texture of that wanting mind, or how it, you, how it feels in the body and so forth. And you may notice how it again manifests and takes the form of longing or lunging after something. Or again, you may just settle back and just feel it's the residue of it in the mind. And that way you just explore all its aspects. In fact, long after many of these mind states leave, like strong desire and strong anger, they're no longer present in the mental continuum, but you can still feel their effects in the body. You just notice it in that moment as it is. Yes? Could you distinguish between indifference and detachment? Because outwardly they seem to be the same, and I've been right. Indifference is uh, more like a pathological detachment. <laughs> and indifference is the near enemy of equanimity. Equanimity, true equanimity, is a healthy detachment. It means uh, uh, not identifying, simply not identifying. There's still a sense of connection with what, with what you're equanimous with or the equanimity itself. There's still a connection with life, with oneself, with the situation. But there's not the uh, identification, meaning the attachment or the preferences. It's the, the far enemy of equanimity is just the opposite. It's the reactive mind that's either clinging to or pushing away. So the opposite of that is indifference, not caring, insensitivity. True detachment is very sensitive, very caring, very open very available. So with just by understanding, the inclination of the mind often is to go and to, be, is to feel disconnected and cut off. To recognize that is not the healthy kind of detachment. Clear? sitting, when I hear the bell, there's the impulse to either move my leg, unfold it, or bring my hands together. Um, I notice that impulse, and I don't know how that relates to the intention to move. And the other example is, for example, sitting at the table, um, eating your food. There's a desire to pick up the cup and have a drink. But there has to be an intention also to reach out and pick up the money. Right. And how do you distinguish them? What, I mean, you may notice different things at first at different times, but how the sequence might be is that you're, you're sitting and you're, uh, you're noticing whatever, discomfort in the body. And out of that discomfort comes the desire to move, or it's the end of the sitting. And uh, you, you know that you're... Uh, going to get up. And so first comes that desire. Again, you're at your table, and there's the desire to, to eat and, uh, and to pick up your fork and begin eating and so forth. So first comes that desire from however you assess the situation in front of you. Uh, and then 
if the sequence carries on, out of that desire comes the actual volition to move. That's the intentional factor, and that's what you might experience as an impulse, as an urge, since volition is, uh, doesn't usually manifest as a discrete thought, but more as that about-to moment before the action. So you feel the discomfort, there's the desire to move, and then you notice the actual impulse, the urge of the uh, intention factor in the mind, chaitana, uh, as you then begin the series of intentions followed by the movements of shifting your posture and so forth. Or the series of intentions and the lifting of your arm to reach for the fork and the lifting of the fork and so forth. Right. right, he's talking about it. It seems like it's conditioned response, like Pavlov's law. It's actually, it is quite conditioned until we start training to be uh, in the present moment, to be quite mindful. And then we see the difference between that uh, condition, our reactive, you know, food, and all we can think of is, you know, stuffing our face or something, just putting it in there and getting the taste buds. And very often you notice when, you, when we're eating, there's only a certain six or seven seconds where that, there's that explosion of taste buds. You know, and oh, it feels really, you know, it's just a delicious experience. Without being aware, we're already going for the second bite. We want that second explosion, and so on and so forth. When we're, when we're attentive, though, when we're very mindful of all these sequential events, the desire, the intentions, and so forth, then it's not uh, so reactive. It's not like Pavlov's Law. Uh, we can recondition the moment. What reconditions the moment is mindfulness. So we see the tendencies, <clears throat> but we don't necessarily follow them. You know, or if we do follow the tendencies, we do so with mindfulness. The question was, I was uh, practicing in, in the monastery in robes <clears throat> with Upandita, and uh, now I'm not. And the question was, if, if I've lost anything of the practice? Well, actually, lost or gained. Lost or gained, yeah. Actually, I see it as the opposite, that actually uh, I felt like I gained a lot uh, in robes, and I feel like I've gained a lot in the household life. And I actually, there's part of my psyche that's always in robes, too. It's not like I, I left anything behind. It's like I've brought that with me, and uh, it's helped make uh, marriage a monastery, or the world a monastery, the household life a monastery. So I, I, see, it as a, uh, uh, I see it as a very uh, harmonious balance of the time where I was a full renunciate in that way of the world and the time now that I'm in sort of a household renunciate practice. That means making marriage or making the household life uh, my practice. And I still take time out every year. I try to take one to three months every year to, con- to do retreat-style practice as well. 
So it's all a game. In, in terms of the particulars that come with practicing mm -hmm. in the retreat, um, it seems like you got um, a more disciplined. Um, there was a more disciplined practice with the upandita. Right. Uh, almost militant. <laughs> in certain ways. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess that I'm, and maybe it's the same answer, um, I'm just wondering about the, um, the, the benefits of that kind of militant or very attentive, very particular, very focused approach. It's a way of life, you know, and it's not necessarily all, you know, always so... Uh, meticulous as you claim. He's talking about is the monastic like always like retreat life? And no, not at all. Sometimes people uh, are more loose and relaxed in robes than those of us here doing this very meticulous, intense kind of practice at the three-month course. That, that uh, It's just a way of life. It's, an, it's, another, it's a, a choice uh, as a way of living, wearing robes and being in a, uh, um, a fraternity of men or sorority of women uh, wearing the robes. And, uh, and following that as your kind of, that's your, uh, uh, that's your way of life. And sometimes it involves intensive retreats and sometimes it doesn't. It might involve study or just cooperation and living together and, and making the monastery a community, uh, a sangha and so forth. It's just, a, it's just, again, it's a question of preferences, as was asked earlier. Uh, it's an attractive way of living for people. Uh, and it has many benefits, of which I don't have time to go into now, but uh, it'll come up later. Uh, so, I need to make a couple of announcements and then the um, interviews are starting. In If you're paying attention to the movement of the leg and you notice all of those things that you mentioned, hardness, softness, pressure, tightness, tension, itching, hearing, seeing, and you notice them, but you're, you know, and they're occurring either in the leg or elsewhere, then you notice them. Fine. If any of that physical or mental experience draws you out into an associative train of thought, speculation, commenting, wondering, etc., then you need to note that. And if it's really strong, stop walking. Note whatever you're caught up in, whatever the mind is obsessed with. And when that is no longer obsessing or distracting your attention, to come back to the standing posture and again connect with 
the movement of the leg, noting, lifting, moving, placing, or whatever it is you're noting, noticing pressure, tightness, tension, tingling. Sensations changing. I'm aware of the um, mind gets caught up in thinking. I'm aware of anything unusual, if there's a pain or an itching. But the general predominant sensations that I feel are just not conceptualized mm. for me. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Like pressure, no, no. temperature. No. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Conceptualize it no, no, no. No, you don't have to. If your attention is, you know, and your your clarity is such that you're with what's happening quite easily, then you don't need any labels or any words or any conceptualization, uh, any concept of what it is you're experiencing. No. Only when you get caught, obsessed, or when the mind is hazy, diffuse unclear what is being experienced. Then you might want to use a label or, or uh, a name for that experience as best you can. Yeah. Okay. Could I do what about those? The beginning stages of practice? Can you just sort of talk about the evolution, the unfolding of the beginning stages of practice? Uh, yeah, the beginning stages of practice is struggling to stay awake <laughs> and to come into the and come into the present moment's experience. And the middle phase of practice is struggling to stay awake <laughs> and come into knowing the present moment. And at the advanced stages of practice, it's not so much struggle and not so much staying awake, it's just keeping present. And that's about it. <laughs> and everything that we've been talking about in the instructions, in the Dharma talks, particularly about the hindrances, is... First stages of practice. Hindrances, you know, pretty pretty major <coughs> section of <laughs> of uh, first stages of practice. That's if you're mindful enough to notice hindrances. <laughs> and often we're not. You know, we're so caught up that we're not even aware of that. But that's okay. That's okay. We eventually get to noticing things like that. And actually, now that we've been here three weeks, we've been in silence nearly three weeks, some of you are like these trees out here, pretty naked, pretty raw, 
pretty sensitive. And so it comes about at this time of retreat that we have to ask that we really recommit ourselves to the precepts. One of which is silence. And that means any communication. That means not talking to each other. Really, really important. What you may think is an insignificant comment to someone, or even an insignificant glance, eye contact with someone, or what you think is a well-intentioned, helpful note to someone about their behavior, about their practice, about anything, can be taken by the other as an earthquake. And so, if you have any communication that you feel needs to be given to another yogi, take it to a teacher. Notes of any kind should not be passed between yogis. You, you just don't know the space that the other person is in. And so really re recognize that that's one of our agreements in being here, that we won't interfere with one another's space. And that means not communicating. Just being present, silently observing your own stuff in this community is a powerful expression of your appreciation for, your love for, your connection for, your metaphor, your each other. No note can express it any better. No touch, no glance, no look can do it. Silent, leaving alone. So we really ask that you look in your daily life here and see how you have been, you know, um, spreading your energy around to others and just pull it in. Just really bring it home and respect your own practice, your own sensitivity, and the sensitivity of others around you. And if something is really bothering you or is really an issue for you in some way, speak to one of your teachers and the appropriate messages will be conveyed. A couple of other little things. Um, also, Stephen mentioned briefly yesterday, but being really careful now about other noise, particularly coming into the hall and as much as possible coming timely and staying till the end of the sitting, if at all possible, and really being sensitive to the noise and activity of just coming into the hall and getting into your nest. Or in the dining room, beginning to be more sensitive to how much noise there is in the dining room with plates and silverware and clinking and clanking and shuffling of chairs and 
it's pretty intense for some of us who are really sensitive. So just, just to begin to waken up to and, and really uh, take your part, you know, accept your responsibility in this community to really keep it um, as, 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 as safe and as, as quietly tranquil as you can. Also, when people are sitting in the library, in the chairs, we ask that you not use the toilet in that room while there's, while there's anyone sitting in there, whether you're sitting there with them or uh, just coming in from the outside. One pain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not a gradual process. I mean, that, that just seems to be the key, is uh, learning to open to the pains of life. Yeah. And how exactly does that happen? Yeah. Yeah, in, in fact, it is a, a necessary and major step on the path of awakening, is learning how to be with pain. And it's something that every one of us has and will confront. And it's all, I mean, we all go through a, a lot of different uh, trials and errors. But, and I know it's been spoken about before, but acceptance of it as just what it is. especially if there's initial aversion and disliking and wanting it to go away and or considering it wrong practice somehow. If, there's, if there is the judgment in your mind that, oh, I'm experiencing pain because I'm doing something wrong, big hindrance. That's not why we're experiencing pain. But that has to be seen and really step back from before we can actually get to the experience of, of pain. Patience. How to accept it. <laughs> there are many ways. So sometimes it's a very gradual approach from the outside, gradually sneaking in and realizing, oh, that this isn't really so bad. It's intense, but it loses its painful biting quality. And sometimes that's a slow approach. And when I say slow approach, that might be over the course of five minutes. It might be over the course of five months, getting slowly in there. And then there are others with, with terrific uh, energy and, and uh, some sort of persistent perseverance, and they jump into the middle of the fire, and they just say, I'm going to see what's in here. And you might try any of those, either of those. And there's uh, the toing and froing, getting close, backing off, getting close, backing off, jumping in, jumping out, getting close, backing off. <laughs> Massaging, touching, gently, rubbing, poking, whatever, to get there. But it helps to really check to see that you're connecting your attention to it somewhere, 
sustaining your attention on it somehow and noticing what's actually going on there. Books could be written. Books could be written about how to open to different types of pains. And, yeah. So it's nine o'clock. Maybe we should continue with the day. Anchoring your attention with the movement of the breath. Seeing if you can be with each breath as if it's a newborn child. When you feel like the <coughs> attention <coughs> is relaxed, <coughs> letting the attention go to what's happening as fully as you can. treating each precious moment equally with great care and alertness. Letting each moment come and go just as it is. Any questions this morning? It depends how quickly you want to get through the building. <laughs> you know, I think you could go at a medium pace, and it's fine to go quicker than everyone else. All you have to do is just be mindful, yeah. In fact, you probably wouldn't want to go like a snail. Probably, I'd say it's in Hawaii. (laughs) 
which I have some mind moments of regret about it. <laughs> what? I said, I think the heat is in Hawaii. <laughs> I can um, ask the maintenance to look into turning it up a little bit. It, I get the impression. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The question is, could I speak about working with preferences? For example, the heat brings up that issue. Well, for example, I think that there's a certain temperature that is very unpleasant, you know, for most human beings. So so if it gets too cold, it's important to uh, understand that there would be the unpleasantness of the cold, and then there would maybe be irritation or frustration or aversion, which is different than just being with the unpleasantness of the cold. And then if one notices that it's unpleasant and cold, it's important to put more layers of clothing on. (laughs) And that doesn't necessarily have to be coming out of anything unskillful. It comes out of caring for the body. Uh, It could come out of something unskillful. You could put clothes on out of extreme aversion to the cold, or you could put clothes on out of just seeing clearly that it's time to put put more clothes on. The the goal, one of the goals of the Vipassana practice is having no preferences, meaning that uh, one is learning to let go of control more and more. And letting go of control doesn't necessarily mean that you'd sit here freezing. You know, that isn't letting go of control. Letting go of control is just seeing the situation very clearly and you know, putting more layers on. Um, Could you say that again, please? (laughs) Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as working with diversion, mm-hmm. um, acceptance. The acceptance, it comes in, um, it's not so much in accepting the object of the, the aversion, but more the aversion itself. It depends on um, how far down the line you are. So if in the moment that one experiences an object such as cold, as unpleasant, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean there's aversion. But in the next moment, if one wasn't mindful of that unpleasantness, usually 
one has aversion in the next mind moment. And then if one isn't aware of that aversion in that moment, usually there's aversion to the aversion. And, you know, and then it, the chain, you know, you can feel yourself getting more and more upset and, or, you know, right. Usually when there's aversion, we get right. You know, like, I'm right that I'm upset about the cold. <laughs> you know? I mean, it, it becomes this extreme aversion attack. So wherever you are in that line, uh, it's okay. You know, it's like if there's aversion, it's important not to try to get back to the cold at that point because that's not what's happening. What's happening is the aversion. So yeah, you would, you would work with accepting the aversion or the extreme aversion. You'd work with accepting wherever you really were in that, in that flow. Yeah. And often I think we try to get back to what causes the aversion rather than just open to the aversion in that moment. Did everyone hear that? No? Okay, the question is about when there's sleepiness. <clears throat> Steve recommended last night to bring the attention more precisely to different sensations rather than have a global awareness that might uh, lull one more to sleepiness. Uh, but she finds it difficult to do that. You might try a middle way rather than see if you can get really precise, you might try to pick a area like the left shoulder, you know, or the right knee, you know, not maybe, a, not maybe one little <laughs> cell <laughs> of the body, but, uh, you know, a more global area, but not, you know, the whole room, and see how that works. Usually it helps to bring the attention to a small area, but not so small that you can't do it. And then feel it, and then move. Feel it, and then move. Feel it, and move. And if you don't feel anything, that's fine. It's the, it's the looking for the sensations that brings the energy. It doesn't matter whether you feel anything or not. So it could be numb, or it could be very vague. But that's the nature of sleep. You know, the sloth, you won't feel it very clearly, but you could probably feel a general heaviness or, or an outline or a shape. With sleepiness, it's helpful to see if you can just find edges, you know, general edges rather than something really particular. And it, it's kind of fun to see that we can be here with those edges. You know, it, it won't be crystal clear. But we can get attached to that crystal clear. It, it's fine for it to be more like cotton candy. You know, it's just a little foggy, that's all. <laughs> There's another type of sleepiness where you, where you feel generally awake, 
then suddenly it's like someone just turned the lights off. Mm -hmm. And then you find yourself again. Right. <laughs> we call that sinking mind. Usually, uh, there's, a, there's usually a lot of concentration at that time where the attention, you feel like you've really with the breath or you feel like you're really there. And surprisingly, the next moment, you're you know, dead asleep. <laughs> and it's really shocking. <laughs> and it's because the energy isn't strong enough to maintain that concentration. So concentration is that ability to very carefully be with something and stick with it, but there's not enough energy at that moment to maintain it, and so you sink, you sink into it and you go unconscious, basically. Uh, and it's a surprise. Uh, so you can't do anything about it once you nod. But then I would recommend what I recommended the last time with sleepiness, is that you bring your attention to different areas of the body and move them, you know, left shoulder, right knee, left knee, right foot, some kind of pattern where you're, you're bringing the attention there and looking, maybe not really precisely, if you can't, but if you can look very precisely. Uh, it doesn't have to be rushed, uh, and, but you can just drop the breath and kind of move it, the attention through the body. And usually, if it's going to bring energy, uh, that will. Mm -hmm. Can you suggest some markers for knowing when your energy is not as good as the concentration you're trying to put out for being able to start the road time if you're on the verge of sinking mind? Well, sinking minds are really good. You know, usually, usually you won't get a... That's why I'm saying it's a surprise because you usually won't get... Um, a hint about it until you nod out, because you really feel there. That's, that's how it usually will go. And if you do get any kind of warning, then I would recommend doing what I just said, which is to start to move the attention. You see, the concentration is that one-pointedness, and it's, it's using the concentration, but moving, so that the energy will come back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Michelle, I tried that. You recommended it. Uh -huh. But it, it's like I had the idea of this sing-along, the ball bouncing along and bouncing. <laughs> <laughs> that works great as long as you keep it up, as soon as you stop. <laughs> but that was my experience. Right. But it really, I mean, it really does keep you alert. So. Yeah, just as keep... As long as you keep going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe, you know, you could slow down the song a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, not exactly, it doesn't have to be a ping-pong game, you know, it can, it can be a little slower. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like having a little child that is almost falling asleep and you're trying to keep them awake and you're just sort of, you know, <laughs> singing to them. <laughs> You know, you can slow it down a little. <laughs> and just remember, it's okay to be sleepy. You know, it, it's part of life. We do have low energy. And you do the best you can to stay awake. 
but you don't, you know, there's an extra layer of aversion that uh, doesn't necessarily have to be there if you're okay with low energy. They're just, it's just a territory to learn to maneuver through. I crowned myself the queen of sloth and torpor years ago, and no one has won the crown. (laughs) (laughs) And it's okay. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.